picking up on that real quick. Uh, because of the weather, and because I don't want to jump back into 1 Corinthians uh, without more of our brothers and sisters here, to be, so we can uh, all be on the same page uh, together. Uh, and I was going to go over a bit of a review of, of where we were in 1 Corinthians. I decided to call an audible uh, for all you football fans out there. <laughs> We'll see, uh, we'll see if the Eagles can, can pull it off against the Saints this afternoon. Um, and uh, I reached back into the archives to about this time three years ago uh, when we still had an evening service. Uh, and I highly doubt that uh, if you were there that you still remember this uh, from three years ago. Uh, so we're, we're going to revisit this uh, this morning. But please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for today. We trust that uh, there is a reason and a purpose uh, for the weather that we have. I mean, we know it's winter, uh, but we also trust uh, that there was a reason uh, you wanted this message uh, to be uh, brought this morning. And Lord, I pray that your word would go forth, that uh, hearts would be touched and changed, and we would all grow into the likeness of your Son. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up going to public school uh, all throughout my school years. So when I was in seventh grade, and as the world had been changing, uh, both genders were automatically enrolled in woodshop, which was traditionally only for boys, and both genders were automatically enrolled in home economies, which was traditionally only for girls. We, we, we uh, spent half the school year in one and the other half in the other. In home economics, I remember we were learning how to sew. Don't ask me if I know any more how to sew. I've completely forgotten that. Uh, but we learned how to sew by crafting these little dolls that we were supposed to customize into who we were. It was supposed to be, be who we were. So if you were on the football team, you'd craft a football uniform for, for this doll. If you had glasses or wore this certain jacket all the time or you liked wearing a certain color, you were supposed to add those. And I remember thinking to myself, who am I? Quite the existential question for a seventh grader who is just supposed to make a little doll in order to learn how to sew to ask himself, isn't it? The question, who am I, has sent many a person into an identity crisis. In our passage to, uh, this morning, that's exactly the question that our friend Moses, as, as you read through uh, the Old Testament and you get into Exodus, has to grapple with. And Moses' tackling of his identity crisis does not end well, to say the least. You, can, you already have a hint of how it's going to end through our scripture reading already. Uh, but, but the first point that we come to uh, as we work our way through this passage this morning is the consideration. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Exodus chapter 2. Uh, if you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Exodus 2. Uh, and It's the second book in the, in the Bible, so just start at the beginning. Keep flipping until you get to the second book. Exodus chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 11, and we read... Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. We can get a little background leading up to this experience and this event from Deacon Stephen's proclamation of the history of Israel leading up to Jesus as Messiah in Acts 
7, 22 through 23. Now this is neat because all, since all of Scripture is God-breathed, we can fill in a little of the gap between, in Moses' life between age 2 and age 36. And we read in, in Acts chapter 7, we read, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40... It entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. Now this paints the picture. If you look at this, this paints the picture of a very impressive man, doesn't it? He was renowned in reputation among the Egyptians. When Stephen says that Moses was mighty in deeds, it means that Moses was someone to be reckoned with. Moses had guts. Some portrayals depict Moses as a mighty warrior. And we don't know if Moses was militarily mighty, but it's also not out of the question. Moses was seen in Egypt as a pillar of strength. Now this is important. Keep that in mind. A pillar of strength. What is equally as important is that Stephen describes Moses as a man of power in words, doesn't it? A man of power in words. Now, to anyone who knows what's coming up in Moses' life, this is quite interesting, isn't it? That Stephen would go so far as to say that Moses was powerful in words. When God shows up to Moses in the burning bush and tells Moses that he wants Moses to go lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, what's Moses' response? He says, Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. That's his response to God. How do we reconcile these two passages? One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. It's a little difficult because we don't know what Moses is referring to here in Exodus 4. There are two main options for what he's referring to here. The first option is that when God visited Moses in the burning bush, 40 years had passed since running away from Egypt, and therefore it's conceivable that after living with some Midianites for 40 years, Moses simply forgot how to speak both the Egyptian and Hebrew languages. In that case, we can reconcile the two passages and that Moses was playing up the fact that he hadn't spoken either language God was calling him to speak for anywhere near enough time lately to speak either of them fluently. But that doesn't make much sense. As Moses was learning to talk around two years old, his little ears were not only hearing Hebrew and Egyptian, but they were making indelible connections in his brain. Then as he trained in Egyptian education all his childhood, the Egyptian language was ingrained in him. The Midianite language would have been learning a second language to Moses, and Midianite would have been the, the difficult language to master for Moses. So even after 40 years, it seems quite far-fetched that Moses would have forgotten his first childhood language to the point of not being able to speak it well. The other option, the second option, is that Moses, what, what, what Moses is referring to here is that he simply is not eloquent when he speaks. This could be a physical speak, uh, speech difficulty, such as a stammer, but it could also refer to having a lot of solidly good thoughts in your head, but finding it difficult to put those thoughts into well-crafted sentences. But Stephen refers to Moses as being a man of power in words. So how do we reconcile that with the difficulty in speaking well? By Stephen 
saying that, it's not necessarily required that a man of power with words needs to, what? Speak them. Right? Moses could have been a very good writer or philosopher without being a good on-the-spot order. Either way, in Exodus 4.10, Moses was pointing out his own incapabilities as reasons why God shouldn't use him. What that means for our passage this morning is that Moses in Egypt, in his Egyptian position, was sure of himself. Egyptian Moses was confident in his abilities, made up for the ones he wasn't naturally acute in, and made a great name for himself. That's what we find out in Acts chapter 7. With that, as what often happens, came along a lot of what? A lot of pride, right? He was so sure of himself, it came along with a lot of pride. But all that was about to change. We read in Exodus 2.11 that it was when Moses had grown up as he was nearing the age of 40, that he went out to look upon his fellow Israelites. Think about that. Why? Why would he do that? Why is it when he's at that point that he'd go out and look upon his fellow Israelites suffering under slavery? Why would Moses, if he knew he was a Hebrew, which apparently he did, why would he wait all that time to make this concrete connection with them that we find out in Exodus chapter 2. In Acts 7.23, Stephen says that it was during the time that Moses was approaching 40 years old. Right? That's what we read in Acts 7. He was approaching 40 years old. What happened around the time that Moses was approaching 40 years old that would have precipitated this event, going out and looking upon his fellow brethren? If we take the conclusions by many biblical scholars that the Pharaoh at the time of Moses' birth was the I, then his daughter, the one who adopts Moses as a baby by pulling him up out of the river, could very well have been the famous Egyptian woman in history named Hatshepsut. When Tutmosis the first died, his successor, Tutmosis the second, ruled for only a short eight years before he died. At that point, the one who was supposed to become Pharaoh, Tutmosis III, was too young to rule over Egypt, so his stepmother, Hatshepsut, the one who became Moses' adopted mother, conspired to make herself ruler and co-ruled with Tutmosis III for 22 years until the year 1482 B.C. Moses was born around the year 1526, so if you do the math, Hatshepsut died when Moses was about 40 years old. Moses' life is roughly divided up into three sections of 40 years. The first 40 years identifying as an Egyptian. The next 40 years identifying as a lost soul in Midian, being a shepherd. And the last 40 years identifying as the leader of Israel. Something needed to shake Moses up and get him to look around him. The death of his mother, the death of his adoptive mother, much like any of us, would obviously do that. For all intents and purposes, Hatshepsut was his mother. That's how Moses saw it anyway. And her death would cause Moses to do some personal inventory and reflection. While his mother was alive, Moses had his identification with Egypt strong. He knew who he was. His mother was co-ruler of Egypt. After all, and he was that woman's son. 
Every time Moses may have had doubts about his Egyptian identification, Hatshepsut would always have been there to assure him of his Egyptianness. But now his mother is gone. And if we look at history, something else intriguing shows up that obviously would factor into Moses' identity crisis. It's noted by historians that when Hatshepsut died, the, the stepson she was co-ruling with for 22 years made it the rest of his life's goal to obliterate the remembrance of his stepmother from history. Tutmose III wanted nothing more to do with his stepmother and didn't want Egypt to have anything to do with her legacy anymore either. So put yourself in Moses' shoes now. Or his sandals, rather. You've always been unsure of your identity as an Egyptian. You've perhaps ha always had your older stepbrother, when you were both kids, tell you that you were adopted. You can surmise, if it wasn't outright told to you by anyone, that you were ethnically a Hebrew. So you always questioned who you were. However, you could always go to your mom and she would always assure you that you were her son and that made you an Egyptian no matter what anyone else said. That's what you hinged your whole identity on. But now your biggest supporter is gone. Not only that, but your stepbrother was now trying to wipe away any remembrance of her off the face of the earth and wrapped up in that was your identity. That would cause anyone to question everything about who they were. So, Moses thought, who am I? If I'm to no longer identify myself as an Egyptian, maybe I should go take into account what's going on with who I'm actually connected to. So we first talked about the consideration. Secondly, we're talking about the crime. As Moses goes to where some of his Hebrew ethnic brothers were working as slaves, he notices something. Verse 11 again, second part. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. This was most likely not one slap in the face when we read this. Unfortunately, as we're often aware, slaves were, slaves were treated mercilessly. This Egyptian taskmaster was most likely beating this Hebrew person to death. And that was probably his goal. It made no difference to the taskmaster, but it made all the difference to Moses. Moses was already in a heightened reflective state. As he looked out over the Hebrews endlessly toiling under their burden of slavery, Moses already had raw emotions that were starting to rise. Perhaps Moses had been shielded by his mother all this time as to what the Hebrew slaves were actually going through. Perhaps all Moses had been hearing his whole life was the progress of the Egyptian empire and about all these monuments and cities that were being built and the greatness of Egypt prospering, but never heard about all the slave labor that had been going into the building of that Egyptian prosperity. But now, however, Moses was seeing it firsthand. He saw the injustice that his people were experiencing, and it was stirring anger up inside of him. Imagine seeing this yourself. You would be experiencing the same emotion. I think anyone here 
would be experiencing that same emotion. It got to the point for Moses that he could not stand the screams of the victim being tortured for most likely doing nothing wrong, perhaps even a person so physically exhausted that he couldn't work anymore, and for that he was being punished. And so, verse 12, So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. We don't know how Moses killed the man, other than the taskmaster was struck down either with Moses' sword or by Moses' fist several times to give the man a taste of his own medicine. Whatever the means, the result was still the same. There lay an Egyptian, one from his lifelong identification, dead by his hands. We know what Moses' motivation was, for Stephen gives it to us. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended them and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. That was Moses' motivation. We have no reason to believe that Moses worshipped the one true God at this point. Moses had most likely been worshipping the Egyptian gods all this time. So even though his crime should not be excused, Moses was always not a worshipper of Yahweh at this point either. In other words, in his mind, Moses had both a physical and also religious identity crisis. Moses knew he had just killed a man, but in his mind, Moses had good motivation to do it. It all happened in a matter of seconds, but let's look at Stephen's description of Moses' motivation for murder. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Let's look at that a little bit harder here. Moses had made a decision when he killed that Egyptian. When Moses killed him, Moses had not only killed a man of flesh and bone, but Moses had essentially symbolically killed his identity as an Egyptian. This was the turning point in Moses' life. He had lived his whole life to this point siding with the Egyptians. But now, in a very real way, for the very first time in his life, Moses identified and sided with his Hebrew brothers. Agreeing with what Stephen said, Moses was not concerned with the Hebrews seeing what he did to the Egyptian. He wasn't concerned about that. He was only concerned with the Egyptians knowing what he did. He actually wanted the Hebrews to see what he had had done. He wanted them to see his action, to see how he had killed his identification as an Egyptian, to see him as the man they'd obviously been praying for to deliver them. Moses probably did not worship their God too much up to that point, but he wanted his fellow Hebrews to see that he identified with who they were in every way, including their God. He didn't know that God yet, but he still wanted to be that God's deliverer of that God's people. He wanted to be the hero. We talked about the consideration, we talked about the crime, and thirdly, we're going to talk about the consequence. Things did not go according to Moses' plan, verses 13 through 14. He went out the next day, full of himself, knowing why he did what he did, 
And behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other, and he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. Moses strode into the place the Hebrews were working the next day, high off of his murderous deed and planning on receiving accolades, or at the very least be looked at by the Hebrews as their deliverance and treated that way. Remember all that pride that went along with being so sure of himself. So he's walking through this area and he notices two men in an all-out fist fight. We have no idea what it was over and it doesn't matter what it was over. There may have been some Egyptian officials rushing over to break up the fight. And Moses, taking the authority in the situation, assuming he deserves it, proclaims to know why the two men were fighting. Now, Moses is used to being in the Egyptian court at this point, right? Where everyone treated him with respect and no one questioned his authority. That's what he was used to. He brings that same pride into this situation, combined with the presumption that the Hebrews loved him now as their hero and would respond accordingly. He goes up to the two brawling men and says, Hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you hurting your brother? You're supposed to stick together. What's going on here? What message does breaking up that fight give? It says that ultimately what two fighting parties are fighting over doesn't matter because the one breaking it up has determined that it shouldn't be worth fighting over. That gives whoever breaking up the fight a certain amount of authority over the situation. Moses was completely fine with that. That factored into his plan perfectly. He thought the Hebrews already saw him as their leader, the one who was giving them salvation and should be respected as the one in authority giving them that. And because of that, Moses thought he was well entitled to have authority in even the smallest respect, that of simply breaking up a fight. But that's not the way the Hebrews saw it. In fact, they disrespected Moses straight to his face. Straight to his face. The one hitting the other at the time gets up in Moses' face and declares, Who are you to think you can just come in here and think you have any authority over me? Who do you think you are? In essence, the Hebrew man, the one who Moses has thought would be grateful for Moses, was saying, I don't care in the slightest who you are. You mean nothing to me. That must have hurt Moses' pride, don't you think? Just a little bit. Here he was thinking that the Hebrews would be flocking to him to thank him for what role he would be playing in setting them free. And they think of him less than the mud they were using to make the bricks. Not only did Moses' plan backfire, but now that same man declares for all to hear, including those Egyptian officials who perhaps had come over to break up the fight, do you think you have the same authority over my life to do whatever you want to do to me as you did to that Egyptian whom you killed? Oh boy. In the Hebrew, it says that Moses thought, after hearing that being declared for all to hear, surely this word is known. See, Moses wanted the Hebrews to know what he did and to praise him for it. He didn't want them to take that information and rat him out. That's not what he wanted. 
But now the word of what he did was known, and now Moses was scared. Quite a turn of events here. With that word being overheard by those presumed Egyptian officials, it's not too long until it reaches Pharaoh's ears. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now remember who, who this Pharaoh was at this time. Many historians believe it was Ramses, and even the, the, the very famous movie, The Prince of Egypt, anybody have seen that? Prince of Egypt, about 20 years old at this point. <laughs> that makes me feel old, because I was a kid at that point. And in that movie, the writers describe this pharaoh as Ramses, even though Ramses would have ruled much later. Furthermore, in that movie, they portray Ramses as not caring about Moses' crime because they were such good buddies and adoptive brothers, and he declared that he would forgive Moses outright, which Moses rejected. And that has nothing to do with what is said in Scripture plainly here. We read that Moses, uh, that Pharaoh sought to kill Moses. But this Pharaoh here was not most likely Ramses, but Tutmose III, again, Moses' stepbrother, the one who had already been becoming more and more hostile towards Moses. Remember, Moses' Egyptian identity hinged on the legacy of his mother, and that was exactly what Tutmose III was doing everything in his power to expunge. And because of that, it's very easy to deduce that Tutmose III was already quite hostile towards Moses, and the word of Moses' action sent Tutmose III over the edge. It was one thing to reject your whole past in its identity. It's quite another to murder someone else on account of that rejection. And it's even quite another to now fear for your life the very establishment that had been your home for all of your life. Moses' identity crisis had reached its pinnacle here. This was the height of it. Not only had he rejected Egypt, but Egypt had now rejected him. And not only that, but his very own people the ones who Moses had literally killed to be a part of, now rejected him. No one wanted Moses. There were no more connections for him either in Egypt or Goshen anymore. The only place for Moses to go was far away from all of it. That was the only place he had to go. Moses didn't know it yet. But even those, his self-proclaimed position of leadership over the Hebrews had completely failed. And even, because of, even, even with that, God himself would commission Moses to become that leader. Some of you may feel it very difficult to belong. You feel lonely and in despair because of that loneliness. What identity you used to have, you no longer have. Moses would have to wait another 40 years from this point before God confirmed his relationship with Moses. But God's love can be confirmed for you right now. You may feel like no one on the face of this earth understands you, understands what happened in your past, or understands what you're going through right now. Every other faith says to you, stinks to be you. 
You must not be working hard enough at being a good person. If you were, the universe would give you someone who does understand what you're going through. Not so with faith in the living God. In fact, He declares His love for you throughout the entire Bible. And even became a man to identify with what you're going through right now. Not just, not just to understand it, but in order to help you, in order to bring you comfort and peace. Let these words wash over you and remind you of who you are to God. O oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know everything that I do. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You believe that? God knows everything that you do. You know what I'm going to say before I say it, Lord. And even in spite of that, you go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. And then David writes something that any of us would say after realizing that. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. Blows my mind. We may not want to identify with God from time to time, but there is never a time when he is not identifying with you and feeling what you're feeling and walking right alongside you through your life situations. And if you know a lonely person, do something about it. In all sincerity, you may not understand what they're going through, but showing love does not mean that you need to. Showing love is free. Beyond that, showing love is what we're supposed to be doing for those around us. If God is doing it for us, we should be doing it for others. And as we close, let us find encouragement in these words about Jesus, our high priest who is our gateway to God. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, I love that, because of all of that, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You are not alone. Christ is your identity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these encouraging words in Scripture. That Moses' humiliation, Moses' hit to his pride, Moses' failure, that, 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 we, that we have that recorded for us to be strengthened by, to be encouraged from. To know that even if we don't feel like we belong anywhere else, we know that we can belong with you. That you know everything about us. Everything. Every single little detail about us. And even in spite of that, you walk right alongside of us. You follow us. You put your hand of blessing upon us. 
You never leave us. You never forsake us. So Lord, I pray that we would rest in that knowledge that if we feel lonely, if we feel like no one understands us, Lord, let us take heart, let us take courage and strength in our identity in you and with your body. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.